Amen. Thank you, dear brother. Pray with me. Lord, revival is what we need. And we pray for revival beginning in my heart and beginning in each of our hearts. We pray for revival in the city. We pray for pulpits that are preaching the truth from your word, even this hour, that there be revival spread through Nassau, through the believers in Nassau, that we would be salt and light. And then, Lord, through our witness and through the moving of the Holy Spirit, may there be revival in this city to bring healing and peace through the Prince of Peace, who we seek to preach at this time. Help us, Lord, to preach and to listen to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm preaching a series this Christmas on Christmas words. Uh, Last week, we looked at the Christmas word of sin. And we said that sin caused Christmas. If there weren't sin, there would be no Christmas. But because there's plenty of sin, there was plenty of a need for Christmas. This morning, I want to consider the Christmas words with you, the virgin birth. The virgin birth. There's a 10-year-old little girl who was becoming quite knowledgeable in the Bible, and she was receiving teaching from her grandmother who loved Jesus. And she asked this of her grandmother, which virgin was the mother of Jesus, the Virgin Mary or the King James Version? (laughs) The virgin birth of our Savior was a major league miracle. Liberal Christians, of course, deny any possibility of any miracles, and accordingly, liberal Christians reduce the supernatural impregnation of a teenager named Mary as myth, or fable, or worse, scandal. Listen to William Barclay, such a liberal uh, Christian, in his analysis of the virgin birth, and I quote, this passage tells us how Jesus was born by the action of the Holy Spirit. It tells us of what we call the virgin birth. This is a doctrine which presents us with very many difficulties. And our church does not compel us to accept it in the literal and physical sense. This is one of the doctrines on which the church says that we have full liberty to come to our own conclusion. At the moment, we are concerned only to find out what this means for us, and such is the liberal interpretation of the miracle of the virgin birth. I say that's yuck. (laughs) Interestingly enough, Muslims don't reject Jesus' virgin birth. Listen, Muslims revere Jesus as the son of Mary, In fact, Mary is the only woman mentioned in the Koran, the Muslim Bible. The Koran itself affirms that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. What is odd is that Muslims find themselves in the position of defending the virgin birth against liberal-minded Christians who call it an impossibility. Muslims also often, at times, go on the defensive against liberal Westerners who say that Jesus did not ascend into heaven. They believe, Muslims believe, that God took Jesus directly up into heaven, for even their greatest prophet, Muhammad, had to be purified by angels before he received prophethood. Muhammad is not even presented as a miracle worker, but Muslims say that Jesus perform miracles, 
They say he healed the blind, he cured the lepers, and to quote the Koran, he brings forth the dead by Allah's leave. And it is in this way that Jesus is understood to be the Messiah by Muslims or the anointed one, and to them, he never dies, although they would admit that Muhammad himself dies, but not Jesus. Is it not ironic that Muslims have these points more accurately than do liberal Christians who discount and deny the inspiration of the scriptures? Non-believers and agnostics and atheists ridicule the notion that a child could be conceived without sexual intercourse, but the God of the Bible, your God and my God, is the God who can accomplish the impossible. Ours is the God who can do the miracle. And if you are here this morning in need of a miracle, know that God can do it. Nothing is impossible in your marriage. Nothing is impossible in your home. Nothing is impossible in your workplace. Nothing is impossible in your neighborhood. Nothing is impossible in this city. Nothing is impossible in this country. Nothing is impossible with God. God is the God of miracle in both the Old and the New Testament. Miracles like bringing the 10 plagues down on Egypt and parting the Red Sea until the Israelites were safely through. God is the God of the miracle like felling the walls of Jericho and fighting the battles with his unseen angels. God is the God of miracle like uh, uh, thriving teenagers in Babylon on vegetables and water and having a whale swallow up a runaway prophet and vomit him up onto a beach. God is the God of the impossible like turning water into wine. God is the God of the of the impossible, like healing the sick and raising the dead, calming the Sea of Galilee and feeding 5,000 picnickers with a bag lunch. God is the God of the miracle. By resurrecting to again to life bodily the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Miracles are main course for the Christian scriptures. The plot of the Bible simply cannot advance were it not for God doing the supernatural, the miracle. And so, we who believe accept what the Word of God says about Mary's pregnancy. We view the virgin birth as one miracle in a long line of other miracles. We view the virgin birth as being very integral to God's plan for our salvation. It's interesting that Some can look at science and see proof of the virgin birth. Dr. James McCullen said that when I pastored in Manchester, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis, a man originally from mainland China attended Sunday school and church. My wife and I had his family over for supper one night. As Jimmy Ping and I talked, he told me that science influenced him to come to Christ. I asked him to tell me more. He said that self-pollinating plants taught him about the virgin birth. Now think about that for a moment. Did you know that there are plants that fertilize themselves? Dr. Jimmy Ping, a PhD in biology, said that this fact helped him to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. I want to share with you this morning three facts about the fact of the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Three facts. First, 
the virgin birth fulfilled prophecy. Second, the virgin birth rocked the boat. And third, the virgin birth blocked the transmission of a sin nature. Let me take these one at a time. First, the virgin birth fulfilled prophecy. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. This prediction of the virgin birth of Messiah came 700 years before Bethlehem. The Hebrew noun here, which we read of in Isaiah 7:14, is Alma. It means an unmarried, medically defined virgin. This same Hebrew word Alma occurs in Genesis 24 in reference to Rebekah. It occurs in Proverbs 30, verse 19, for a young woman who was to be consummating her marriage. And Alma, this word for virgin, also appears in the Song of Solomon in chapter 1 and chapter 6, referring to the unmarried Jewish women of Judah. And in all these Old Testament cases cited, it is the medically defined virginity that is in view. Now let's go to the New Testament. What does the New Testament have to say about the virgin birth of Jesus? If you go with me, Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. This verse in Matthew 1.23 is quoting the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible as it is found in Isaiah 7, verse 14. This Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible is called the Septuagint, and it is a very accurate translation. The Greek word used here in Matthew 1, verse 23, is parthenos. Parthenos. It, too, means an unmarried woman who is a medically defined virgin. Parthenos. unmarried woman who is a medically defined virgin. Parthenos is a totally unambiguous word. Its meaning is precise. There is no room for debate about what it means. Parthenos used here in Matthew 1 verse 23 means a literal, medically defined virgin woman. That's what it means. And so in both the Old and the New Testaments, it was both predicted and realized that Messiah's birth would be actually a supernatural, a miraculous virgin birth. Go with me to the first book of our Bibles, Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3, the chapter where Adam and Eve fell from they're a state of perfection into sin. And in Genesis 3, in verse 15, there is a prediction after the fall that's very significant. God is speaking. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. 
Notice, please, that this particular prophecy in Genesis 3.15 is a prediction that the woman's offspring, not the man's, the woman's offspring would destroy Satan and sin one day. Again, 3.15, Genesis. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So what Church, what were the implications of that miraculous, supernatural, and virgin birth? Well, this brings us to our second point this morning. The second point in your outline is the virgin birth rocked the boat. Now, I know grammatically it's not proper to say pretty bad, but I put it there to kind of shock you, make your eyebrow raise. The virgin birth rocked the boat pretty bad, for sure, for real. All kinds of ugly questions arose when Mary turned up pregnant. Was she promiscuous while engaged? Was she unfaithful to Joseph while pledged to him in marriage? Whose baby was this? Is this an illegitimate child? Whose last name should the child have? Would Joseph go ahead and marry his wayward, cheating fiancé? Or would he initiate a broken-off Jewish engagement? Would he annul their year-long delay to consummate their marriage? Who will raise the unborn child? Would God judge the parents and child by striking any or all of them dead? You'll recall that that happened with King David and Bathsheba's little baby boy. Ugly questions. They abounded. And so we read verses like Matthew 1, 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. Or we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and verse 42. And they were saying, Is not this Jesus, son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Or in John 18, the first part of verse 19. And so they were saying to him, where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. They're saying, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Do you have a daddy? Do you know him? Yet, in Luke 3, verse 23, it says, And when he, Jesus, began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. He was supposed to be the son of Joseph, but he wasn't really. Joseph was his foster daddy. 
not his biological daddy, because Jesus was born of a medically defined Alma Parthenos virgin woman. This brings us to our third and final point. The virgin birth blocked the transmission of a sin nature. The virgin birth blocked the transmission of a sin nature. To teach you what the Bible teaches about this, I need to teach you a word that may not be new to you, but may be new to you. It's impeccability. When we say someone is dressed impeccably, it means that all of the details to their outfit are just perfect. There's no fault. Impeccable. Impeccability is a Bible teaching or a doctrine that the incarnate Christ could not sin because he was God and because he had no sin nature. The impeccability is the Bible teaching that Jesus Christ could not sin because he was God and he had no sin nature. That's impeccability. Hebrews 4, verse 15, touches on this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Staying in Hebrews, going to chapter 7, verse 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So you may be thinking as a thinker, Were the temptations, therefore, of Jesus Christ, if we believe he was impeccable, if we believe that he could not sin because he was God, he could not sin because he had no sin nature, were the temptations of Satan in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, were they for real? Were they legitimate temptations? Yes, they were. There's a bridge over the Niagara River just downstream from Niagara Falls, Canadian and U.S. Falls. There is a bridge that I've driven over many times in a vehicle. When they built that bridge, the first days of building that bridge, before they ever opened it to the public, they drove extremely heavy trucks over that bridge to prove that it wouldn't fall so that regular motorists could drive with a peace of mind that the bridge would hold the weight of their vehicle. The temptations of Jesus Christ were real. They proved that he could not sin. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, listen carefully. He, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, Christ. Let me say it again. He, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him, Christ. Now watch it with me. In order to save us from our sins, our Lord Jesus had to be sinless so that he could become sin for us. And guess what? You only can become sin if you never were sin before. Jesus Christ had to become your sin and mine, meaning he never had any sin before he became ours. He was virgin born. A sin nature was not passed on to Jesus from the seed of a biological father. And we'll get to that in a moment. In Psalm 51, 
the great psalm of the confession of sin of King David after he was found out by the Spirit of God and Nathan, who came to him and said, you're the man, after he had had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, she had become pregnant, had given birth to a little baby. After all of that had transpired and David was contrite of heart, truly repentant and sorrowful for his sin of adultery and his sin of orchestrated murder of Uriah, it says in Psalm 51, verse 5, something that impinges upon our discussion of the virgin birth. Verse 5, behold, David says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Let me say what that isn't teaching. That isn't teaching that normal, intimate relations between a husband and wife are sinful. God designed that most intimate of oneness for married couples. It's beautiful. The act of marriage is not sinful. But what David was recognizing is the theological truth that while he was in his mother's womb, he was infected with a sin nature from conception. So were you. So was I. We do not come into the world morally neutral. We are born with a sin nature. Normal conception passes down a sin nature. We're not born innocent. We are born rebels. Rebels against God. How many of you ever had to teach your very young child to say no? That would be no one. The first word out of most little children is no. We are born rebels. Right behaviors need to be consistently aggressively, intentionally taught and trained and instilled into young humans, we need to pray that'll happen again in the Bahamas. Right values, morality, a sense of right and wrong need to be taught intentionally, aggressively, consistently to young children because we're born with a sin nature. We're born with a propensity to raise our fist and say with our voice to God, no. And so, it took a miracle, a flat-out miracle, to break this chain of inherited sin. And in the Lord Jesus' case, a supernatural virgin birth Conception passed on no sin nature. And it was necessary. Norman A. McMurray tells about a palace in the city of Rome, which has a great high dome. And inside that dome, up high, there is a painting known as the Dawn by Guido Reni. In order that visitors may see this masterpiece, a table has been placed directly beneath the dome, and on that table has been set up a mirror. And when one looks into the mirror, he sees the majestic painting far above. 
Is that not exactly what the incarnation was all about? Jesus of Nazareth, virgin born, is the only mirror to show us the majestic holiness and grandeur of God. The virgin birth was absolutely necessary to bring God's glory into focus for earthlings like us who are bent on rebellion. This morning, we've seen that Christ's virgin birth, number one, fulfilled the Old Testament messianic prophecy. Number two, it rocked the boat. Number three, it blocked the transmission of a sin nature to our Savior. And one last thing about the biological births and about sin natures. Medical doctor, medical doctor, M.R. DeHaan, puts forth a scientific chain of facts that teach an accurate theology. You ready? Stay with me. Dr. DeHaan gives forth this scientific medical chain that ties into observable scientific reality. No sperm, no blood. No blood, no life. No life, no sin nature. No sperm, no sin nature. Virgin birth, no sin nature. The virgin birth are three Christmas words to be sure. And this holiday season, join me in praising God for the absolutely miraculous way that he sent us his Savior. Medicine can't explain it, but we can accept it by faith and with deep thanks. As a church, let me go on record, as a church, we believe in Christ's special and miraculous virgin birth. We do. We believe in Christ's virgin birth without hesitations. We believe in Christ's virgin birth without any qualifications. We believe in Jesus' virgin birth. C.S. Lewis helps us, quote, the grounds for belief are the same today as they were 2,000 or 10,000 years ago. If Joseph had lacked faith to trust God or lacked humility to perceive the holiness of his spouse, he could have disbelieved the miraculous origin of her son as easily as any modern man. And any modern man who believes in God can accept the miracle as easily as Joseph did. End of quote. The virgin birth fulfilled prophecy. It rocked the boat, and it blocked the transmission of a sin nature. But fourth and last, the virgin birth allowed the eternal Son of God to move in onto the hospital ward of terminally ill, sin-sick earthlings. Let me illustrate. Dr. John Rosen, psychiatrist, pioneered a new treatment for some people who were severely mentally ill. These were catatonic patients 
curled up in fetal position in their beds, refusing to acknowledge that anyone else even existed. They would neither move nor speak. Dr. Rosen moved in on their ward. He put up a cot there. Every day he saw those patients. Sometimes he would stop by a bed, take off his white medical jacket, and climb into the bed with the patient. He would put his arms around patients and gently embrace them. Some returned to the land of the living because of that wordless expression of concern and love. The virgin birth allowed the Son of God to move into the mental ward of sinners called earth. Jesus Christ put up a cot in the mental ward of our rebellion, and he lived with us, and he touched us, and he loved us, and he gave us hope. The virgin birth fulfilled prophecy. It rocked the boat. It blocked the transmission of a sin nature. And it gave us God's love so that we could be forgiven and made whole. Lord, thank you for the miracle of the virgin birth. We believe it, although we can't explain it. We believe it. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a supernatural people, a people who are changed by this virgin-born Savior, the Prince of Peace. We ask these things for his glory and for the good of those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name together. Amen.